0: Did you see Biden at the White House Correspondents Dinner? Sleepy Joe who? That guy was sharp. He said, I'm really excited to be here tonight with the only group of Americans with a lower approval rating than I have. And then he said, we had a horrible plague followed by two years of COVID. (laughs) Come on, man. That's just undeniably funny. Hello and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Education has become a hot button topic in America. From the school closings due to the pandemic, to the war on masks, to the endless talk of CRT, parents' rights, and the banning of books and talks of LGBTQ issues, the Republicans, never one to let a good crisis go to waste, have found a way to capitalize on this issue. The Democrats, not so much. So today we're going to talk about public education in America and how our politics are poised to completely reconfigure it depending on which road we vote to take. On April 5th, voters across Wisconsin went to the polls to vote in hundreds of school board races. What were once quiet nonpartisan elections have become madhouses of anger, controversy, and culture war issues surrounding race, LGBTQ students, and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. For the past two years, an allegiance of mostly right-wing politicians, donors, activists, and yes, some parents, funded by conservative special interests and right-wing media, have waged war on our public schools. These attacks on our school boards, our teachers, and our administrators are well-coordinated and well-funded, and one that Republicans see as a winning issue going into this year's midterms. The coalition of right-wing advocates argue that they are simply fighting for parents' rights and school choice, and to prevent the indoctrination of our children. But public education advocates believe this current attack on our schools represent the latest step in the long-term conservative project to weaken and ultimately destroy the public school system, one that nearly 51 million students and their communities rely on in favor of a private system designed to primarily benefit the wealthy few. Professor Michael Apple, a professor of curriculum instruction and educational policy at UW Madison, himself a former K 12 teacher, union leader, and renowned educational theorist, says In order to understand what's going on in education, you have to understand the larger context of increasing impoverishment, the defunding of public schools, and the movement of a part of our society towards what might be called neoconservative or neoliberalism, which holds the belief that private institutions are innately good, and public institutions are innately bad. Historically, Americans have believed in the importance of a strong public school system, but the current political winds are undermining the entire concept. And this isn't some phenomenon that arrived in a vacuum or simply the consequence of the pandemic. Where we find ourselves is only possible because the Republicans have spent the past 40 years undermining the entire system. We have to ask ourselves what we think school is for, At its root, the idea of public school was to increase the life chances for the majority of the people in this country, not just something for people who can afford it or what makes money, but as a public good that can be used by everybody. Most Americans take the public education system for granted, assuming that education for all American citizens is something that has always been provided, but that's not actually the case, and it's important to understand the history to have a better sense of what we're dealing with today. There has always been a direct correlation between education and wealth in the United States. In the beginning, even basic education was reserved for the children of the rich, and college was basically a finishing school for the next generation of aristocracy. But over time, the culture changed, and education became something that was recommended and eventually required for all children. But since knowledge is power— Education has always remained a source of controversy, a struggle between progressive values and conservative ones. How about a little background? In 1635, the town of Boston opened the Boston Latin School for the sons of the ruling class. The Boston Latin School, alive and well today, is the oldest school in America, as well as the country's first public school. Nearby Harvard University opened the following year, becoming America's first and oldest school of higher education. Despite the school's establishment, the concept of classroom teaching was not something that was commonly done. Most of the children in the Puritan Northeast were educated, meaning they learned to read and write, at home, with most affluent families paying private tutors to educate their children. And when I say children, I mean boy children. Girls were sometimes taught to read but not to write. Classroom learning was reserved almost exclusively for boys from wealthy families of European ancestry, so rich white boys. As towns became larger, more schools were constructed, but still only about 10% of colonial children went to school outside of the home. Early public schools didn't focus on academics like math and reading, but taught the virtues of morality, family, and community, and of course, and most importantly, religion. In the 1700s, most schools were common schools. Common schools educated students of all ages in one room with one teacher. Typically, these schools were public but not free. Parents paid tuition or provided housing for the school teacher or contributed other commodities in exchange for their children being allowed to attend. Resources in early classrooms were limited. Classrooms would have slates and chalk for writing lessons and possibly a few books for literacy. Although numerous schools were established over the next century, they were not connected by any centralized education system or guide. There was no formal structure in place or checks and balances to ensure schools were providing a certain quality of education. After the Revolutionary War, when America won its independence, Thomas Jefferson argued that there should be a formal education system, paid for by the taxpayers, but nothing would actually come of that for about a hundred years. Schools did, however, continue to be established, in order to educate a wider range of Americans. Parents and teachers in colonial times had used primers and readers typically imported from England, but after the Revolution, that had to stop. So to help unify the nation after the war, textbooks were written to standardize spelling and pronunciation, and to instill patriotism and religious beliefs into these newly American students. This is the birth of the power of the textbook. He who controlled the minds of the young wielded a lot of power. America's earliest textbooks included negative stereotypes of Native Americans and certain immigrant groups. They told you how to speak, how to think, and what the real history was. To this day, the struggle to control the content and distribution of textbooks is an epic political, social, and cultural battle. By the mid-1800s, there started to be a real call for free compulsory education. And in 1837, Massachusetts created the first state board of education. This movement towards a state public education structure was initiated by someone named Horace Mann, A state legislator who had rose from humble beginnings to graduate from Brown University and became a champion of social reforms, particularly public education. According to PBS, Mann's passion for education stemmed from his belief that education was the key to bridging social gaps, overcoming poverty, and creating a more equal society over time. During his time with the Massachusetts Board of Education, they extended the school year to a full six months, fought to get better pay for teachers, and more resources in the classroom. Mann advocated for publicly funded common schools led by professionally trained teachers, open to all children through at least elementary school. He believed that free school should be available to all citizens, regardless of race or social class, as a way of building wealth within the country and providing opportunities to all citizens. Horace Mann was clearly someone deeply ahead of his time, and his influence on education was instrumental, as it was because of him that children from all social classes were offered free formal education in Massachusetts. Another name to know in the early history of public education is a man named Henry Barnard. Barnard came from a completely different background than Mann. When Mann made his way in the world from nothing, Barnard was born to an extremely wealthy family and grew up with all the privileges of life. The two men, however, shared a passion for public education, which, after graduating from Yale in 1836, led Barnard to become deeply involved in the state of education in his home state of Connecticut. In 1838, a year after Mann had created the first Board of Education, Barnard became the secretary of the Board of Commissioners of the Common Schools of Connecticut, where he worked to solve problems he thought to be inherent in the public school system. Through his passion and dedication, Barnard is credited with successfully forcing the districts in his state to meet the minimum standard for building, teaching, and classroom resources. In 1852, Massachusetts became the first state to make formal schooling mandatory for all children, followed the next year by New York. Up until then, it was up to the parents to decide if they wanted their children to go to school or not, or if they happened to live near one that would take them. But now, children had to attend school. In 1857, education associates from 10 states formed the National Education Association to advance the dignity and respectability and usefulness of the teaching profession. And despite the fact that the majority of common school teachers were still young, unmarried women, only men could join the association for the first 10 years. Although to their credit, they did elect a woman as president a good 10 years before women got the vote in America. So kudos. Education always seems to be on the forefront of progress. Now, as I talk about all these states that were moving along in the world of education, I need to be clear that the educational infrastructure that existed in the North did not translate to the antebellum South. Before the Civil War, the Southern tradition was for parents to educate their children, teach them morals and values, and to prepare them to enter Southern society. And then, of course, it was illegal to educate slaves. Southern leaders were also suspicious of things like primers and readers being used in the North because they believed they would encourage their students to question the institution of slavery. I mean, hello. This is exactly the same shit we're dealing with today. Certain people not wanting their children properly educated so they don't develop critical thinking that will make them question the status quo. I mean, history repeats itself. Sheesh. So the southern states were much slower to pick up on public education. In fact, the South didn't actually have widespread public school until Reconstruction, after the Civil War. And the last state in the Union to adopt compulsory education laws was Mississippi, In 1918, 66 years after Massachusetts adopted theirs. However, as we feel pride for the progress of America educating its population, we can't ignore the fact that along with the rise of free compulsory education, there was a fair amount of ethnocentrism or white Christian centering. In some ways, compulsory education was intended to further national unity and to teach immigrants American values. Mandatory education was a way to prevent immigrant ways from corrupting society. Compulsory education also went hand-in-hand with industrialization, because a new industrialized economy needed workers who had certain skills. Public schools became a place to teach future workers the skills they needed for the new economy. And because most people were quite poor, critics point out that compulsory education really just served the interest of the upper capitalist class more than it served the interest of the students who would become their workers. Like showing up to a place on time, taking a set lunch break, responding to bells, coming back every day and doing it all over again. That's what we were teaching our children. And kind of what we teach our children today. Who sets the school curriculum and what is prioritized for students has always been a source of controversy. We're dealing with it now. Why are we learning some things but not others? Who are we learning about it for? Why are we learning it at all? But no subject has been more controversial over time than science and history. This isn't something we're just dealing with today. It's something that has been going on since the beginning of education. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of the Species, which claimed evolution, not creationism, was the truth. In 1861, the American Civil War broke out. And from then on, it was geographic location that largely determined whether students learned biblical creation or evolution in biology class, and whether slavery was taught as the central cause of the Civil War, or if it was states' rights and northern aggression. In 1867, after the Civil War, President Andrew Johnson, who took over after Lincoln was shot, established the first federal Department of Education. The original purpose of this department was to collect information on all individual schools so they could help states establish their own effective public school systems. For the record, the Department of Education still does that to this day. But there was so much blowback about potential government influence on local schools that the Department of Education had to be scaled back to the Office of Education the following year. It wouldn't be upgraded to a cabinet-level agency until a hundred years later, but it does go to show you that the people getting hot and bothered about the government involved in their children's schooling is not a new issue. In the years following the Civil War, public education found itself in a bit of a quandary as Black Americans now rightfully wanted to be included in public education. In 1896, the Supreme Court voted 8-1 to to uphold a Louisiana segregation law in public transportation. The standard set by Plessy v. Ferguson decision soon spread beyond trains to public schools, and the concept of all men are created equal became separate but equal. Classrooms, like virtually every other social institution across the South, would soon be segregated by law instead of just by custom. Segregation was not mandated by law the same way the Jim Crow South was, but the northern states had their own forms of state-sponsored segregation, and segregation was alive and well based on individual racism, where you lived, and financial disparities, so the North doesn't get a free pass for not having segregation. Segregation and racism separated Black and white Americans in public schools, but also in higher education. By 1890, the Office of Education's responsibility had expanded to include support for institutions of higher learning. Free, compulsory education applied only to primary and secondary schools. But in the mid-1900s, college was something mostly reserved for wealthy people who had time on their hands. But at the end of World War II, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, which you probably know as the GI Bill, allowed millions of returning servicemen to pursue an education instead of entering the workforce, and college took off. In 1947, at peak enrollment, Veterans made up 49% of college admissions, and by the time the original GI Bill ended in 1956, 7.8 million World War II veterans, nearly half of the 16 million who had served, had participated in education or training, plus enjoyed the living stipend paid for by the government. Although the GI Bill's language was race-neutral, most colleges and universities were not. So it didn't matter that the federal government would have paid tuition for black veterans. They were never going to be admitted to college that excluded non-white students, either by policy or practice. Redlining did the same for housing that the GI Bill did for education. It kept black Americans from enjoying the benefits they had earned for service to their country. Which is systemic racism. And when you think about it like that, that's exactly the kind of things we should be learning about in school. Because then maybe people would understand the concept of reparations far more. Anyway, things changed in 1954 when an NAACP lawyer named Thurgood Marshall brought a case to the Supreme Court where he successfully argued that even in the rare instances where resources were distributed equally to black and white schools, segregation itself taught inferiority to black students and favored white children. In Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that separate is inherently unequal, and declared segregation in American schools to be unconstitutional. Thurgood Marshall would go on to become the first Black Supreme Court justice in American history. The guy was a flippin' rock star, and the fact that we followed his brilliant visionary life of service with compromised, seditious-adjacent, long-dong-silver Clarence Thomas is just such a kick in the face to American justice. But moving on. After the Brown v. Board of Education decision came down, I'm sure it's not a surprise if I tell you that America didn't just stop being racist. In fact, schools became absolute battlegrounds for integration and civil rights. The National Guard had to come in to stop riots in Tennessee. Paratroopers from the 101st Airborne had to shepherd the nine Black teenagers, called the Little Rock Nine, to their classes when they started at the all-white Central High School in Arkansas. And trailblazing elementary students like Ruby Bridges and James Meredith became civil rights icons as they were integrated into their all-white schools. The bravery of these first pioneers into such a hostile environment is something we should honor in America. We teach history so we can learn from it. Ignoring its ugliness so certain people don't feel bad is a disservice to our children. It's important that we understand that Black Americans weren't allowed access to white schools until the mid-1950s, when our Supreme Court voted that segregated schools needed to be abolished. And we need to know that despite Thurgood Marshall's unanimous legal win, it took years for real change to truly take effect. But the Brown v. Board of Education decision did usher in a whole slew of new laws aimed at guaranteeing an equal quality of public education, regardless of race or income. And we should be curious about why the 1954 decision to ensure every student in the country received an education without being held back by race, income level, or background is something we are still striving for today. Because that is a question worth asking. Two major events changed public education drastically in the 1960s and triggered incredibly large increases to education spending. The first was the 1957 launch of Sputnik, Russia's satellite, and the ensuing space race that followed where America was so worried it was falling behind Russia that it put a ton of money into science and technology education through the National Defense Education Act. And second, President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, which included legislation that included major funding for poor students and underfunded schools at all levels across the country. In 1963, President Johnson, who clearly does not get enough press for being a thoughtful and forward-thinking leader, signed the Vocational Education Act, which dramatically increased funding for non-college training and education in the trades. Later amendments to that bill would extend funding to demographics like women, minorities, or people with disabilities. Two years later, in 1965, President Johnson signed the Higher Education Act, which expanded public funding to colleges and universities. It was a bill specifically designed to improve access to higher education for middle and low-income families, making them more upwardly mobile and supporting smaller schools with fewer resources so more people could partake in higher education. By the 1970s, despite the decision almost 20 years earlier, most schools were still segregated. This is often because neighborhoods were segregated and children went to whatever school was closest to their home. So in 1971, the Supreme Court approved a strategy of busing children to more distant schools populated by students of another race. It was a traumatic time for the country, and it revealed a lot of widespread racism in places it wasn't expected, like major northern cities. Most notably, Boston, the birthplace of public schools, where busing caused a series of ugly and violent protests. In fact, buses carrying black students to white neighborhoods had to be accompanied by the police for their own safety. Again, something we ought to be learning about in school. Women weren't allowed to participate in school athletic programs until 1972, when the federal government passed the education amendments that included something called Title IX. Title IX was a great achievement for civil rights, women's rights, and equality in education because it banned discrimination based on sex, which opened the doors for young girls and women to participate in school-sponsored programs. In 1975, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act were passed, two landmark pieces of legislation that allowed millions of children with special needs, who up until then had otherwise been shut out of public education, to now attend the same school as their peers. It should be pointed out that most of the big changes that happened in the history of our country's education were all federal laws. Laws that came from the federal government that really forced the game to change. We are a privileged, capitalistic society, and we started segregated. Change doesn't happen because people just choose to do the right thing. Sometimes their hand needs to be forced. Look at the power the states are currently wielding on education. What can be taught? What can be said? Who can use what bathroom or play for what team? What books can be read? What books are banned? Left to their own devices, the states are showing themselves to have some pretty backward points of view. Perhaps it's time for some new federal legislation to protect all Americans and not keep kowtowing to the select few. But the states currently passing these laws might just say, as they do with many things, if you don't like what we're doing, just leave. Go to a different school. Go to a different state. In fact, we're trying to give you more options. That's why we like school choice and charter schools and religious schools and vouchers. We're trying to make sure everyone is happy. In fact, Republicans are leaning hard into school choice right now, mostly so they can get their own children into schools that are filled with more their type of people, teaching their type of way. But there is even more to it than that. And we're going to talk all about that after some words from our sponsor. So stick around. Okay, Politics Girl has a new sponsor, Calm. Calm is the number one mental wellness app that gives you the tools to improve the way you feel and function in the world. Reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations. Improve focus with curated musical tracks. And rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. Here's the thing. I use Calm every single day. I go to bed every night to a sleep story. I'm particularly fond of train and travel stories, and I use their white noise soundscapes like Dune, Rain on Leaves, Water Giver of Life when I work. I'm not kidding. When Calm approached us to do this show, I was like, uh, yeah, because I would love to talk about your product. It is so good. They even have longer term meditation projects like seven days of calming anxiety or seven days for managing stress. I can't say enough about this app because I literally use it every day. I highly recommend you give it a chance to see why over 100 million people around the world are using it. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com politicsgirl. There's even a new daily movement session designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. So go to calm.com politicsgirl for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library, calm.com stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. Today's economy is bananas, so it's important to save money wherever you can. If you've got a small business, inflation isn't doing you any favors, and it's harder than ever to stay profitable. If you're looking to find a way to cut costs, mailing and shipping is a great place to start. Simply use stamps.com to mail and ship and get access to exclusive discounts and great rates on shipping from UPS and USPS. We use stamps.com ourselves, and I have to tell you, we get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like 30% off USPS and up to 86% off UPS. Yeah, 86%. No matter what business you're in, stamps.com can help. All you need is a regular computer and printer, no special supplies or equipment. So start mailing and shipping with stamps.com and keep even more money in your pocket every day. Sign up with promo code PoliticsGirl for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter politics girl. Money saved. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I tell people all the time, if you want your life to be better, get a therapist. Invest in yourself. Have someone in your corner to work through your issues in a time allotted just for you. Where else can you get that? BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. If you don't want to be on camera, you don't have to. This is your time, and it's about what works for you. BetterHelp is far more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give it a try. See why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. Right now, Politics Girl listeners get 10% off the first month at betterhelp.com politicsgirl Honestly, you do a lot of things for other people. Do this, for yourself. Are you paying down old credit card debt? I am. Well, according to Credit Karma, a personal loan could be the solution to our problems. Loans usually come with fixed monthly payments, making them a simple way to help pay off our credit cards. Plus, they have lower interest rates than we're already paying, and Credit Karma will help us find the best one for each of us. Paying down debt can be incredibly stressful credit karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you they'll even show you what your chances are of approval so you can choose between loan offers that you're more likely to get and apply with more confidence comparing loan offers on creditkarma.com is 100 free so it won't affect your credit score and you could end up saving even more money if you're ready to apply head to creditkarma.com loan offers to see your personalized offers that's creditkarma Dot com slash loan offers to find the loan that's right for you. We all know how much it sucks to try and pay off our bills. Make it a little bit easier on yourself with creditkarma.com. And we're back. So we've given ourselves the background on public education in America. But now we're going to look at the current attack on the system, where one political party would rather change our public school system, currently taxpayer-funded as a public good, into a market-based system that would be privately owned and privately controlled. There is a river of money in public education, and it's no secret that the Republicans have wanted to get their hands on it for a long time. We have to remember that public schools are a public trust. They belong to all of us. So when you see high roller donors start hovering around schools and school boards, you need to ask yourself why. Remember, the people funding the idea of dismantling or privatizing public education aren't using the public school system. These are families like the DeVosses, the Waltons, the Kochs. A large amount of the financial backing for these school choice groups and the lobbying behind alternative to public schools like charter schools and vouchers are all coming from people who can afford to have their children educated in the very best private schools. They don't believe in a shared community responsibility, or even in a community with us at all. They care about themselves. In their eyes, public schools take away from the version of the world they're trying to create. An educated, critically thinking public is not useful to people who would rather be our overlords. Remember when Donald Trump said the quiet part out loud? I love the uneducated. Our free public education system has created one of the most widely educated populations in the history of the modern world, and these people think it needs to be dismantled, that the government has no business in education. In fact, in a perfect world, it never would have been established in the first place. And this isn't me just bitching about billionaires or my assumptions about their plans for our country. Betsy DeVos said as much when she was education secretary in Trump's cabinet. David Koch said this exact thing when he ran as a libertarian vice presidential candidate in 1980. Koch's exact words were, We advocate for the complete separation of education and government. We believe schools lead to the indoctrination of children and interfere with the free choice of individuals. Government ownership, operation, regulation, and subsidy of schools and colleges should be ended. Back in 1980, David Koch didn't even want education to be compulsory. He enthusiastically pitched the immediate reduction of tax support for schools and removing the burden of school taxes for those who didn't have children. The whole thing makes me think of author John Green's famous statement about public education, where he said, Public education does not exist for the benefit of students or the benefit of their parents. It exists for the benefit of social order. We have discovered as a species that it is useful to have an educated population. You don't need to be a student or have a child who's a student to benefit from public education. Every second of every day of your life, you benefit from public education, which is why I like to pay taxes for schools, even though I don't personally have a kid in school, because I don't like living in a country with a bunch of stupid people. I mean, it's a pretty good statement. This shared responsibility for educating our children is arguably one of the greatest achievements for a successful community. It gives children a safe place to go during the day, allowing the parents the time to go to work. It teaches a common set of facts and gives knowledge to a population which ultimately creates an educated future workforce with critical thinking skills and upward mobility. Libertarians in the Koch community see that as bad. They also see it as a financial burden. They want to lower the taxes, and getting rid of public school is a really good way to accomplish that. Now, I think most of us can say that we want lower taxes, but surely we'd rather if our tax money was just spent wisely. And investing in the education of our country's children seems like a very wise way to spend our money. There is an increased fear of the other in our society, and the Republicans are feeding this fear. Right-wing media is feeding this fear. And this fear isn't new. It's just recycled bullshit from our past. This idea that people's precious white Christian children will have to attend school alongside children of different skin colors and different religions and different sexualities and the whole thing is supported by their tax dollars just drives some people crazy. The idea that they don't get complete control over the environment, from who's in their class to what they learn, makes people feel some feelings. And those feelings are being fed by the very people who don't believe in public education in the first place. And they go on to use their money and influence to encourage parents who need the system to undermine the system, which only ends up benefiting the donors. It's dastardly, but it's smart. The pandemic gave the movement a major lift because it produced arguably the greatest challenge to the operation of the nation's public schools since maybe the Civil War. As American Federation of Teachers president, Randy Weidgarten, said in an interview, most schools stayed open even during the most major disruptions to American life, like the Depression and World War II. But everything fell apart with the pandemic. When have we ever had a situation where all schools within 24 to 48 hours went remote? The pressures of adapting to this new reality and this ongoing struggle to return to something approaching normal have put an enormous strain on everyone connected to the school systems, from administrators and teachers to parents and students. And all of that pressure opened fault lines in the politics of education. And for those who want public schools gone, it couldn't have gone better. So we're two years into the pandemic now, and the one thing public opinion can agree on is that parents, and the public more broadly, really want schools open for in-person learning. About two-thirds of all adults, and an even higher percentage of parents of children under 18, said they were most concerned about kids not attending school in person, and those frustrations over extended school closings were the initial spur for people to start protesting school boards. But we need to recognize, Despite the fact that they're all lumped in together, that there is a difference between genuine grassroots discontent, democratic divisions on how to best handle the pandemic and this aggressive new push from conservatives and the dark money that funds them to undermine the entire system. Conservatives have jumped in with this concept of parents' rights, but despite how much press these vocal advocates get and how much we've seen them in the news talking about freeing children's faces and government overreach and this whole I don't co-parent with the government stuff, when it comes to the pandemic, the National Parents Union and the American Federation of Teachers found that most people were understanding, if not complementary, to how schools were trying to balance the health and academic concerns. Polling also undermines the idea that there's some huge widespread backlash against mask requirements in schools. CVS polled people in February and found that nearly three-fifths of people with school-aged children were on board for schools to continue to require masks if the science deemed them necessary. But you wouldn't know that from listening to the news. The broadest movement emerging from the turmoil of the pandemic is the effort by Republican-led states to turn genuine exhaustion from two years of living in chaos and concern for the good of their children's education into a way to be able to censor how teachers talk about race and gender, which has nothing to do with the pandemic at all, but is instead a capitalization on already frustrated parents. Republicans are using the pandemic as kind of a bait and switch. Parents across the ideological spectrum are frustrated with how the school has been handled over the past couple of years, and with the quality of public education in general. COVID was just the final straw for an educational system that was already struggling, and the Republicans are capitalizing on that sentiment to do something they have always wanted to do, which is to destroy public education. Over the past 40 years, they have implemented funding cuts. Pay cuts, unproven teacher methods, charter schools, increased class sizes, elimination of the arts, elimination of local control, benefit cuts, cuts in pensions, attacks on teachers, and all of these things have been led by the Republican Party. And now they're out here looking to stop the teaching of subjects they don't like and punishing schools for actions that go against their own personal version of the world. So far, at least 36 states have adopted or introduced laws or policies that restrict teaching about race and racism. With the 2022 state legislative sessions underway, even more legislation is in the pipeline. In fact, so many proposals have been put through that a political scientist who tracks laws for free speech in America says that he believes that all 23 states where Republicans hold unified control of the governorship and state legislature are going to approve some version of these divisive concept measures. And these... Anti-CRT proposals are broadening their reach. As of now, at least eight states have considered legislation that would limit or fully prohibit how teachers in schools talk about sexual orientation and gender identity, with the most prominent, of course, being Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. We have states trying to impose greater surveillance on teachers, like the Iowa bill that proposes installing a video feed in every classroom. We have Glenn Youngkin, the Republican billionaire who eked out a win for the Virginia governorship based solely on the idea of parents' rights, establishing a tip line for parents to snitch on teachers. We have book bans spreading across red states and parents that are losing their minds at school board meetings. It is bananas that these states, the ones that talk endlessly about freedom, are basically turning into surveillance states with ever-increasing censorship, and no one who votes for them is seeming to notice. Ron DeSantis, who along with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, has been among the most vocal and visible advocates for these new restrictive laws, defends them as a way of ensuring parental input into the curriculum. They keep pushing the idea that Democratic politicians think parents should have no role in the education of their kids, and they just want parents to have access to what's going on in the classroom. As if every parent in America didn't realize pretty quickly during the pandemic that when it comes to teaching and our children's education, we are pretty much out of our league. Now we're going to backseat drive our teachers' lessons? Stop our jobs to watch a live feed from the classroom? Critique the syllabus and debate lesson plans? I'm sorry, a lot of people don't even go to parent-teacher interviews. Now we've got time to do this? I don't think anyone is debating that parents should have a say in their children's education. But this kind of micromanagement undermines the entire profession. Jameson Brewer, Assistant Professor of Social Foundations of Education at the University of North Georgia, says the message is clear. Looking at these bills, we're saying we don't trust teachers. We don't consider them to be professionals. We have little regard for the work they do and will undermine them at every step. It is deeply damaging to the profession, which is why teachers and administrators are leaving the job in record numbers. Teachers mostly go into the profession because they like children and they want them to learn. But these lawmakers are making it impossible for them to do their job, the thing they went to school to do. What other career are people with no qualifications coming into the workplace to tell professionals how to do their job and getting away with it? Politics in the classroom has long hindered education, but the pandemic and how the government got involved to keep people safe has taken the debate over classroom politics to an all-time high. These new bills are leading educators to self-censor and abandon equity initiatives. Teachers and school boards are being threatened even in districts where bans haven't been passed yet. And we can't ignore that these bills aimed at stifling conversation about racism and oppression are designed to privilege the desires of white parents over other parents. Just as the bills aimed at limiting talk about sexuality and sexual orientation are designed to privilege the desires of straight and religious parents. Republican legislatures are selling these bills as parents' rights. But what parents? Whose parents? Because a black child or a child with LGBTQ parents or a child who is LGBTQ should be entitled to see their culture and hear about their stories in the curriculum as well. We also have to question why one group of parents should have the right to make a decision for an entire classroom or an entire library that serves a diverse community. School libraries do more than support curriculum. For many students, it might be the only library they have access to. It gives them entertainment, artistic expression, or access to literature that might not be part of the curriculum. In some cases, these bills are going to allow a single parent to change the entire school district's library based on their own personal beliefs. Sponsors of these laws say they're just trying to diffuse racial conflict and protect the students. But critics of these bills argue it has the exact opposite goal. That these bills aim to suppress the social and political influence of historically marginalized groups that are growing in numbers. These bills that restrict how schools discuss race or sexual orientation are coming at exactly the same time the new census found that children of color are, for the first time, the majority of the under-18 population in America, and at least one in six members of Generation Z identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Republicans paint themselves as the party of parents. But this is the same party that voted against universal pre K and the childhood tax credit, that voted against free or affordable community college and taxpayer funded after school programs, the same party who didn't want vaccine mandates or masks on their children to protect them from a deadly virus, and who refused to regulate guns that are now the leading cause of death for children and teens. However, Republican leaders have rightfully calculated that injecting partisan politics into local decisions about education will only serve to help them. Republicans are heading into the 2022 midterms with what they believe is a highly effective political strategy to capitalize on the frustrations of suburban parents reeling from the fallout of the pandemic. Daryl Bradford, the president of 50 Can, a national education advocacy organization, says that while Republican support for school choice policies aren't necessarily new, they're just now being used as a remedy for perceived grievances from a host of culture war issues as a way to destabilize public education and drive voter turnout in the way Republicans want. This really has very little to do with students, education or teachers. It's all about Republicans regaining political power. And just so we're clear, school choice is an umbrella term that describes policies that allow parents to choose options other than going to the school their home address is zoned for. It includes everything from public charter schools to programs like education savings accounts, education tax credits, and school vouchers that provide private school tuition assistance for low-income students, students with disabilities, or those zoned to low-performing schools. Randy Weigarden, president of the American Federation of Teachers, says these new school choice discussions are right from the Betsy DeVos playbook, with the goal being to completely destabilize public education so that parents will move to private schools. And it's hard to ignore that the plan seems to be working. The reality is public schools are losing staff and veteran educators by the busload, and few replacements are applying. Why would you want to teach or be an educator in this increasingly hostile environment? which is exactly what the Republicans are hoping for. They have spent years trying to make public education so bad that people have to choose alternatives because the alternatives don't have to follow the same rules as public schools. Right now, theoretically, public schools are a public institution that have to teach the real history of the United States. They have to be responsive to the diversity of cultures and religions and languages. Voucher schools, religious schools, and even some charter schools, they don't have to do that. The idea being pitched is that these divisive concepts like social justice and democracy for everybody will sort themselves out if everybody has a choice. But statistics and evidence show that voucher plans don't work the way the rhetoric says they do. In fact, vouchers are shown to increase school segregation and increase the chance of having more affluent people have more power. So despite the democracy and fairness vouchers promise... What we really get are schools that are increasingly for gated communities, schools that are for more affluent kids, schools that are responding to what affluent parents or more religious parents want, and schools that don't have to teach anything that isn't representative of those groups. And when you give money to these voucher systems, it means that public schools, which have to reach everybody, become underfunded because the money is taken from the public school budget and put into the voucher program or the nonprofit charter school program. The money follows the kids, so if you take the kids out and use an alternative, the money goes with them. If you want to see the impact of a voucher system, look no further than Wisconsin. As educational theorist Michael Apple points out, a lot of the data on voucher schools is incredibly flawed. For many years, voucher schools didn't even have to take the same tests that monitored and held public schools accountable. Many voucher schools, especially those that were in the private sector that were supposed to be not-profit but were really for-profit, closed. In some places, 30-50% to of the voucher schools that opened have closed. Private school vouchers are considered by experts to be an overpriced alternative that do very little to replace the educational services offered by public schools. In Wisconsin, the 32-year-old voucher system has grown into a $350 million program that educates 10,000 students in 250 private schools statewide. Those hundreds of millions of dollars are a constant drain on the budget of public schools that are attempting to educate more than 850,000 students. And about 80% of the students receiving vouchers to attend private schools never attended public schools. But taxpayers are paying for their education, primarily at religious schools, where they have no control or say over what these kids are learning. And while Apple points out that there are some voucher schools that have been proven to be successful, particularly for kids from minority backgrounds, these are not the schools Republicans are interested in funding. In fact, looking at the statistics, vouchers make very little sense as a business model unless you realize that the end goal is to privatize education and do away with public schools completely. That's the whole reason Trump chose Bessie DeVos as education secretary. She had been working on getting vouchers for private schools for years. The religious right can't afford to, or won't spend the money on, running a whole school system, so they want tax dollars to keep their system running. These religious schools have been very successful growing their brand, using money from the voucher systems. Churches don't pay taxes. Taxpayers pay taxes. Tax dollars go to vouchers. Vouchers are used for private schools. The most affordable private schools are religious. So between vouchers and Republicans continuing to deny more funding for public schools across the country, they are bleeding the public system dry. And what happens when public schools don't get enough funding? It means school districts, which are already in financially dire situations, have even less money to recruit teachers, to update facilities, to pay support staff or fund programs. It means that class sizes go up even though the classrooms are already packed and the teachers are strung out then people are disappointed in the quality of education. So if they can, they move to charter or religious schools, and those who can't are stuck at subpar public schools. It is a vicious circle that tears apart public education and gets the money into the hands of the organizations and groups that will educate kids in a way the far-right conservatives would prefer. We also can't ignore that school vouchers are a way to hit back at the power of the teachers' unions. During the last 30 years, as private sector unionism has declined, the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association have continued to grow. Grover Norquist, head of Americans for Tax Reform and one of the most influential Republican strategists in Washington, sees a great political benefit in going after teachers unions. In a 1998 interview, Norquist said, School choice reaches right into the heart of the Democratic coalition and takes people out of it. He's talking about the fact that teachers' unions overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party because they tend to be geographically diverse, with members in every congressional district in the country, and more likely to be open to what conservatives see as the liberal agenda, which includes social issues like gay rights. Teachers' unions are the nation's largest and most powerful political unions, and Republicans do not like that they back the Democratic Party with their money and their grassroots organizations. After all, public schools exist in every municipality and county in the nation. And unlike manufacturing, teaching can't be outsourced to countries like Mexico and China and India. When speaking to mainstream publications, conservatives tend to underplay their partisan antagonism towards teachers' unions, but they are much more honest when they speak to conservative publications. Terry Moore, a senior fellow at the conservative Hoover Institution and co-author of the book Politics, Markets, and American Schools, said in an interview that the two teachers' unions have a lot of money for campaign contributions and for lobbying. They also have a lot of electoral clout because they have many activists in every political district. No other group can claim this kind of geographically uniform political activity. They're just everywhere, he goes on to say. School choice and vouchers allows children and money to leave the system, which means there are fewer public school teacher jobs, lower union membership, lower dues, and therefore less power. Conservatives like Norquist view vouchers as the key ingredient in their effort to downsize government services. Norquist said, the problem is that the federal government hands out billions of dollars and people will lie and cheat and steal to get it. And since it seems these days that everything the Republicans accuse someone else of is a confession, that seems like a pretty loaded statement. Norquist goes on to make a completely asinine analogy, saying, If you have a big cake, and you put it under the sink, and then you wonder why the cockroaches are in your kitchen, I don't think any sprays or blocking the holes are going to get rid of the cockroaches. You need to throw the cake away so the cockroaches have nothing to come for. But as Barbara Miner, a Milwaukee-based journalist specializing in education, says in her article, Why the Right Hates Public Education, I don't think most Americans see school teachers and students as cockroaches. The overwhelming majority of the population supports public schools. They don't want them dismantled. They just want them to work better. This kind of attack by Norquist and his far-right conservative and libertarian compatriots is nothing less than a highly partisan attempt to undermine teachers' unions, the Democratic Party, and the American tradition of public education in general. They are telling people it's about parental choice, but it's about political power. Recognizing education is a powerful wedge issue, Republicans are trying to galvanize groups of voters around this concept of parents' rights, which is basically just a hodgepodge of conservative causes tied up in a package that they can capitalize on what The New York Times calls a free-floating sense of rage from parents post-pandemic. This combination of genuine discontent over schools closing and massive funding from longtime critics of public education has created this perfect storm. As a side note, it should be noted that the most cynical conservatives are also trying to paint universal vouchers as a way to support Black and Latino Americans. Voucher supporters keep trying to rebrand school choice as the new civil rights movement. They believe it plays not only well with voters of color, but also with liberal suburban whites who are leery of allowing too many minorities into their schools, but still see themselves as people who are pro-equal rights. They try to paint voucher opponents as being the same as Southern segregationists. Like, voucher opponents are trying to stand in the way of good schools for poor Black and Latino children. It is deeply cynical and calculated. And more than trying to get them on board with school vouchers, it's a way to paint the Democrats as racist. Part of the Republican strategy has always been to get young Black people not to vote. The goal is to discredit Democrats and breed cynicism. These far right groups like the Bradley Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation, Children First America, are constantly running ads, supporting vouchers, and painting anyone who's against them I mean, people who are in reality just pro public school as the new George Wallace. Even if they can't get everyone to buy into this idea, they believe the suggestion of racist Democrats will lessen the black and Latino voter turnout, which is ultimately a neutralization strategy that works in their favor. Republicans are becoming more and more ruthless, with their politics leaning more and more authoritarian. There is no longer room for discussion or nuance. You either believe exactly what they believe or you are against them. Republicans are even attacking their own members who aren't 100% on board with school choice, like representatives who have districts that are mostly rural. Districts without other educational options than public school. Districts that have struggled with the idea of school choice because they're not going to be able to build a new private school or fund a new charter school in that area. Representatives whose constituents depend on the public option are justifiably worried that if their own party undermines public schools, what will happen to those kids? But if you don't 100% support school choice, then the Republicans are going to come after you as a rhino and try and replace you with someone who will better toe the party line. This has nothing to do with the people and everything to do with retained power and top-down command. When Florida Senator Rick Scott, Republican and chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, unveiled his 11-point plan of conservative priorities, the number one issue on the list was the ability for parents to choose the school that best fits the needs of their children. Best fits the needs of their children sounds good. What if the best needs of your children, according to their parents, are a segregated school with Christian prayer and a no-gay policy? Where does that leave other children in the district, especially if those new schools are getting all the federal dollars? When Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds delivered the rebuttal to President Biden's State of the Union, she focused on the idea that conservatives are leading a pro-parent, pro-family revolution, and that school choice was a way to eliminate the threat posed by public schools in America, which she basically characterized as hotbeds of liberal brainwashing. During his speech at CPAC, Donald Trump said that any parent who objects to the radical indoctrination in their children's classrooms should be able to take their share of taxpayer dollars and spend it at the private, charter, or religious school of their choice. He went on to say, we will never forget what these people did to our children, and we will hold them accountable at the ballot box. Look, the politics of school choice has always been messy. Democrats generally take the position that opposes taking money away from public schools. But that's not a blanket statement, because some Democrats, especially ones representing economically disadvantaged communities, are supporters of private school choice policies. The political lines are even less clear when it comes to Democratic support of charter schools, which experienced the largest expansion in history under the Obama administration, but had mixed results. And the progressive wing of the party is increasingly using charter schools as their own purity test. GOP strategists are capitalizing on school choice as a way to drive voters out, but it's ridiculous to not kick back on what they're offering. The party of parents? Please. Everyone supports their kids. Show me a Democrat that doesn't want a high-quality education for their child. Show me a Democrat that doesn't believe that parents should have some say in their child's education. This is just politics and branding. If you want complete control over every single thing your child learns, how it's taught, and who's around them while they learn it, it sounds like you should be homeschooling. If you want prayer in the classroom and religious teachings, you might be better suited to a religious school. Of course we should expect more from our local public schools and hold them accountable for their results. We should want them funded and teachers compensated for quality work, and parents should be involved in a helpful, not detrimental, backseat driving kind of way. It's teachers who know their curriculum, teachers who have been trained to do their jobs, and we need to be far more cognizant of where our place in the classroom ends. Republicans don't believe this, or at least it's not what they're pitching. And they and their far-right donors are funding people to run for school boards and state legislatures all over the country to ensure they get exactly what they want. We didn't used to pay attention to races for the people that set the public school curriculum, but that has to change. These state board races are now deeply important. The more closed-minded the representative, the more censorship and division we're going to have in our schools. The CRT argument alone is getting people out to vote against something that's not even happening. And CRT has morphed into anything certain people consider divisive. It is deeply dangerous, and we cannot let these positions go uncontested. Authoritarianism and education work side by side. That's why many fascist states completely take over education. You could argue that even right now, many states are using education as a vehicle for white supremacy and educational regression. Despite the fact that Republicans continue to refer to Democrats as groomers trying to indoctrinate your children into the LGBTQ lifestyle or become part of the radically woke left, it's really Republicans who are using laws to turn public education into spaces of indoctrination and conformity. They are the ones passing legislation to erase and whitewash history, to attack any reference to race, diversity, or equity. And they're the ones undermining individual teachers' autonomy over their classroom and asking for complete control of the curriculum. It's almost as if the Republican Party is now subscribing to the politics of denial and disappearance. Are they so afraid of the possibility of our young people learning about the true history of colonization, of slavery, the struggles of those who have resisted oppression, that they would rather American children be ignorant than learn the truth? Not learning about something doesn't make it go away. It just means you can't learn from it or be part of the solution. And how can American children compete on the world stage if everyone else is working with facts and we're working with American facts? It is short-sighted and embarrassing. Democrats can't ignore what's happening. They need to see that a significant amount of parents are concerned about the quality of the education system. The public school system was not ready or prepared for the pandemic, and it left parents scrambling. This made the public education system look like a failure. So, when Republicans started talking about this promised land of school choice, more people were open to it. And we can't close that box now. Will Marshall, founder and president of the Progressive Policy Institute, a centrist Democratic think tank, says Republicans are tapping into frustrations, real and imagined, about public education, but Democrats are leaving a vacuum. We have no reform agenda. The party often comes off just like they're propping up the bureaucratic status quo that many parents don't think is working. You can't just point at the Republican demagoguery about race and books and win an argument based on potential fascism. You have to make voters a counteroffer about the importance of public education. It's hard to understand why people would want to get rid of free public schools. It seems implausible. Since the founding of our country, education is the way we have taught people the skills, knowledge, norms, and values they need to become productive members of society. Education is an important part of socialization. We now live in the most radical, most ethnic, most multicultural America ever. That democratic shift isn't changing. And this attack on public education is in many ways driven by a certain collection of white people who are worried about what they see as their God-given place of dominance being threatened, and they are trying to hold on to it. If we're being realistic, there's an entire group of people, Republican leadership and the big money donors that fund them, who are looking at a future where we are divided into basically two classes, the haves and the have-nots. The upper 20% is going to have most of the money and all of the control. So the idea of teaching critical thought to the bottom 80% might feel counterintuitive. To them, it's better to either get rid of public education altogether or use public schools as factory training for their worker bees and get them all thinking the way they want them to think. It goes right back to the post-industrialization schooling and the indoctrination of the quote-unquote real American ideal. But this time, it's not the immigrants we're trying to indoctrinate. It's the poor's. Bruce Maples, columnist for Forward Kentucky and author of Why Are Republicans Attacking Your Schools, says this kind of split society is not just an unfortunate consequence of a capitalistic society. It's something that has been planned and talked about by various powerful people in groups across our country. And if the whole thing sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory, I understand. But there's just too many things happening right now to ignore it as a possibility. One of the pillars of our democracy is an educated citizenry able to govern itself. So it's critical that we don't allow this split to happen. It's critical that we fight for our public schools, not just in our states, but across the nation. The Democrats and the Biden administration must set a more sharply defined course through these waters. They've been very clear about advocating for schools to be open and allocating spending to support that choice. But now they need to be more vocally opposed to these restrictions on teachings, to the growing censorship and marginalization of minority voices, and more open to advocating for school reforms that might do things to improve the school and student performance that every parent in America so desperately wants. So that's it. Know that staying on the sidelines has caused more problems than good. Schools everywhere are moving to the front lines of the struggle between what America has been and where it's going. Schools started off as a place for a certain type of person to learn a certain type of thing, and Republicans seem to wanna take us back to that place. We have to offer a more appealing alternative. We can no longer allow these disingenuous, cynical people to hold political power. It is terrifying that so many people continue to support them as they tear down everything we stand for. People of good conscience need to join together to resist this attack on education. For our children's sake, for our future's sake, for our country's sake, we need to boldly say, hands off. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment.